0: Thank you,
1: Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 390th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by our good friends at Change Healthcare offering audit services for coding quality, CDI, and charge capture compliance. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reemer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. And good morning, Erica.
2: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody.
1: We continue our Series 5, Looking at 10, and our special guest today, will be one of the most influential thought leaders at the time. That's Rob Tennant. He's from the Medical Group Management Association, or as we know them, MGMA.
2: That's right, and I'm looking forward to your interview with Rob Tennant. I remember the challenge he faced getting group practices on board with ICD-10.
1: And speaking of five, looking at 10, Gloria Ann going to report on lessons learned from clinical coding audits and how to select a coding vendor. And all of this, of course, is very valuable lessons. And speaking of valuable lessons, Lori Johnson will report on lessons learned from ICD-10, as it relates to ICD-11, and Tim Volce with WebSpring has our revenue cycle report this morning, and you have a talk pack, sir. What are you going to be talking
2: about? I'm continuing with the recent CMS informational session on CCs and MCCs. They responded already to my questions.
1: Mm, good for them. That's kind of surprising. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk.
0: The Talk Ten Tuesday News Desk is brought to you by Physician Revenue Solutions, providing medical practices with a full range of revenue cycle related services.
3: Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. In effective October 1st of 2018, Medicare implemented a value-based purchasing or VBP program. of nursing home payments from Medicare are being withheld from payments and nursing homes will be allowed to earn back these deductions based on scorings of claims data existing at that time. SNFs can dispute some of the readmissions that they're facing and they can exclude certain admissions when certain things happen. And you uh, you are lucky that I have gone back and uh, reworded some of these things into language that's possible for people to actually understand. So SNF stays where the patients had one or more intervening stays in a rehab or long-term care hospital that occurred either between the last hospital discharge and the SNF admission or after the SNF discharge within 30 days, within the 30 day risk window can be removed from listed readmissions. SNF admissions where the patient had multiple SNF admissions after the last hospitalization within the 30 day window can also be removed. SNF stays with a gap greater than one day between the discharge and the last hospitalization, the SNP admission can be removed from readmissions. SNF stays where the patient did not have at least 12 months of regular Part A Medicare enrollment before the last hospital discharge uh, measured as the enrollment during the period of the last discharge and the last 11 months of that month can also be removed. SNF stays where the patient was discharged from the stiff against medical advice can also be removed. SNF stays in which the patient did not have regular Part A Medicare enrollment for the entire period, risk period, measured as as during the enrollment month of the hospital discharge and the month of discharge. SNFs in which the Medicare principal diagnosis for qualifying qualifying hospitalization was for the treatment of cancer can be removed from readmissions. SNF stays in which the principal diagnosis for the last hospitalization was for rehabilitation care, the fitting of a prosthesis, or the adjustment of such devices can also be removed from readmissions. SNF stays in which the prior uh, stay was for pregnancy, which doesn't happen very often with Medicare patients, can also be removed. And finally, SNF stays in which data is corrupted or missing or problematic in any way can be removed from the calculation. The good news is the the adjustment is budget neutral, and high-performing nursing homes will be allocated funds above and beyond the 2% cut so they actually receive money that was taken away from any other facilities. Is Medicare going to automatically apply the exceptions? Of course not. SNFs are going to have to file appeals and maybe more importantly, look at root causes for readmissions. We also think that this is the opportunity to open a dialogue with referral sources which are acute care hospitals for skilled nursing facilities. Acute care hospitals are also penalized for readmissions by Medicare, and working together, SNFs and hospitals can help each other to reduce readmissions and improve patient cares. Stunning in healthcare, a true win-win situation. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an IC10-100 correspondent. This is Tuesday. It's October the 22nd, 2019, and you're listening to the 390th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by Change Healthcare. Stand by.
0: Accomplish big things in little time. AHEMA's on-demand coding webinars offer a timely, flexible solution to keep pace with the rapid changes happening in the health information industry. Walk away with new knowledge and know-how. All it takes is an hour. AHEMA's 2019 coding webinars cover topics like ED infusion and injection coding, improving revenue integrity, the new frontier for HIM professionals, the ABCs of e and and more. Visit ahimastore.org to browse all topics.
1: Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori.
4: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. Before we talk about the ICD-10 transition, I want to provide a vaping update. We've been following the vaping story for the past month, and there is news on the coding front. The Center for Disease Control, the CDC, has published guidance on... October 17th, which is retroactive to discharges on 10-1-2019. That guidance has been placed in the Panelist Resources tab. The guidance says that the coding professional should assign the code for the specific lung injuries such as J68.0, bronchitis pneumonitis due to chemicals, gases, fumes, and vapors, or J69.1 pneumonitis due to inhalation of oils and essences. If lung injury is not specified, assign J68.9 unspecified respiratory condition due to chemicals, gases, fumes, and vapors. If poisoning is due to nicotine, assign T65.291- for the seventh character, which is toxic effect of other nicotine-slash- tobacco, accidental, if poisoning is due to THC assigned T40.7X1- for the 7th character, and that's poisoning by cannabis, accidental. Any substance use, abuse, or dependence can also be coded. This advice has been approved by the four organizations that make up the cooperating parties. Now I'd like to get to the my thoughts on icd 10 Transition with respect to training. I have five points on my list. The first point is to begin early. If you remember, AHIMA began its Train the Trainer Academies in 2009 and we were still pushing to get people trained in the summer of 2015. My second point is this, to survey and identify who requires training and the type of training that is needed. This is also related to my third point, develop training for different levels. The physicians don't need to know how to code, but they are required to understand the specificity of the code set. As we were going to 10, obviously they needed to understand the specificity of ICD-10. The billers need to understand the changes to medical policies, effective dates, and handling the billing process during the transition period, but the coders needed deeper training. The fourth point is that the practice is required is that practice is required to keep skill sets sharp. Set aside some time for the coders to assign codes to one or two cases a week. Let them have time to talk about the struggles in assigning the codes for those cases. And my fifth point Uh, and last point, is that we can't forget about training and how it fits um, into workflows. Meaning, how how will this new code set impact how we do our work? Training is not only for the code set, but, but for how the person does complete their work. So just to reiterate those points, start early, identify training needs, Develop different types of training, provide practice time, and don't forget about workflows. Back to you, Erica.
2: Those are great suggestions. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC.
0: We continue our series, Five Looking at Ten. Five Looking at Ten is sponsored by Change Healthcare offering audit services for coding, quality, CDI, and charge capture compliance.
1: Joining us now for lessons learned from ICD-10 is nationally recognized H.I.M. authority, Gloria Ann Bryant. Good morning, Gloria Ann.
5: Good morning. Thank you, Chuck. And hello, everyone. As you all know, we've been focusing this month, October, on the transitional learnings we've had from ICD-10C and PCS. And we've been now with entering our fifth year of using this code set. Lori Johnson and I have been discussing a variety of lessons learned since October of 15. Two areas that I'm talking about and draw your attention to are coding audits and how to select a reliable and highly qualified coding vendor. In my recent article, it should be out today, if you go to Talk 10 Tuesday, I discussed lessons learned in this particular area, coding audits and the selection of coding vendors. For coding audits, let's talk a minute about how and why we are so dependent upon clinical codes in our healthcare system today. Well, of course, healthcare reimbursement is a big driver, and for the determination of medical necessity, for determining healthcare quality, and also for just generally validating the accuracy of the data through the code set itself. Now, also thinking about the regular part of coding in your operational process is also important for any healthcare setting. Identifying potential and actual coding errors, sometimes we refer to these as variances, is a very prudent way for you to support your compliance program and your compliance activities. We want to make corrections prior to any external investigations that could occur And as well, we want to improve our internal functions. These coding audits help us do that. The coding audits identify educational opportunities, system issues, reduce payer denials, protect revenue, and identify documentation gaps. Sometimes a coding audit brings on a fear, a negative feeling, and the staff are a little anxious about it. But these coding audits really can and should be perceived as being very helpful, as well as they're a necessity in today's world. ICD-10 has enhanced the acceptance of regular and ongoing auditing, which is a good thing for all of us. Now, the selection of using an external coding vendor or a contractor is a very important process and function as well for any organization or health information management department. Using a coding vendor is often a necessity for a variety of reasons, shortage of staff, backlog, increase in your workload, special coding projects, transitioning to an electronic health record, new technology, and even outsourcing the coding to an external vendor or supplier. We also need to be prudent with our selection process of a coding vendor and clearly state all of our requirements to them, such as we want to know about their background checks, how they validate the coding credentials and certifications of the staff they hired, what their applicant testing is like. Not just a simple true and false quiz needs to be more extensive than that. What their onboarding process and orientation is like and includes, and what their remote access is like. So much remote work is done today. We want to ensure that privacy and security is protected as well. So we would ask about that from our coding vendor. Those were just a few things to mention. My article talks about a few more. And as I always say, coding ethics are foundational to the work we do in healthcare. We need to remember this each and every day by doing our due diligence. And I want to give a shout out one more time to thank everyone in this wonderful, passionate profession, both coding and CDI, who were so instrumental in ICD-10 readiness and implementation and giving us these lessons learned. Back to you, Erica.
2: Thank you, Glorianne. That was Glorianne Bryant. Glorianne is a nationally recognized health information management leader, author, and clinical coding and documentation expert.
1: Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Revenue Cycle Report is Tim Bivosi. Tim, good morning.
6: Good morning, Chuck. Thank you. Um, discharge, Not my topic is going to be leveraging DNFB reporting. Discharge but not final build, also known as DNFB reporting, is controlled by HIM and is one of the most important coding workflow processes. DNFB reporting serves as the optimal moment for identifying billing issues, reimbursement-related issues, missing or invalid case documentation, missing charges, and incomplete or missing ICD-10 data. By leveraging the DNFB reporting, in-house coders can identify and resolve coding-related issues during the pre-billing process, before the patient account has been billed and before a claim is created. DNFB represents the time within your revenue cycle to validate critical billing requirements necessary for appropriate adjudication. DNFB reporting also allows hospital revenue cycle teams to recognize denials as close to the patient's data service as possible. This moment in time of the DNFB document provides a final window of opportunity where issues can be resolved more easily. Required data can be collected and changes can be made to fix or enhance a patient's account data to fulfill payer requirements and avoid denials. DNFB can also be beefed up to act as a contract validation tool to recognize suboptimal coding and suboptimal ICD-10 code orders. Post-DNFB, it is often too late to adjust data elements. After DNFB reporting, most EMRs finalize a patient's case, making it difficult or impossible to change the data, add data or remove data so that the the case is paid the first time when a claim is submitted. Move your focus to the front end of the DNFB process to be sure errors and issues are resolved in the early stages, where in the early and editable stages. If your primary EMR allows, utilize DNFB edits to determine the patient account's progression to final bill status. Instead of using timeout strings or delay days, which is a number of days from the data service to when the bill cuts off, let your DNFB edits trigger the billing. Only when all the DNFB edits are fulfilled does the system allow the patient account to drop to a claim. Remember, too, of the importance of continued analysis of coding-related denials. <clears throat> One change in the ICD-10 order can represent thousands of dollars in lost and gained reimbursement. Consistently and systematically comparing your coding denials to your encoder system is well worth the effort. For example, a patient, might be, might be, a patient claim might be denied by the payer for an invalid diagnosis code when this happens the provider encoder system most likely did not recognize the invalid diagnosis prior to billing to confirm this denied claim what you should do is reload the patient case into the encoder by pushing the denied claim back through the encoder they can confirm whether the edit made by the encoder system for the invalid is are correct or incorrect so if the encoder doesn't recognize the edit so if you get a denied a denied claim for a coding edit and you reprocess the claim through the the encoder and it doesn't recognize the denial, then the encoder system may be out of date or it should be updated. So there's something going on with your encoder system. Oftentimes what I see is the encoder doesn't recognize the invalid diagnosis, but the coder hasn't been trained to react to the edit. It's like a soft stop Um, in order to prevent the same mistake from happening again. So unless the encoder is set up with hard stops, forcing the coder to react to the edit, these types of issues will continue to slip through the process, resulting in denied claims. Back to you, Erica.
2: That was very helpful. Thanks, Tim. That was the Vice President of Consulting for RevSpring, Tim Bavosi.
6: The magazine Health
1: Data Management has named him as one of the top 30 health IT experts to watch in 2019, and he's going to be here in 60 seconds. That's my exclusive interview with Robert Tennant. This is Talk
0: in Tuesday standby. The physician query process is an invitation to legal and financial disaster unless you apply lessons learned during an upcoming webcast on how to achieve a compliant query. During this exclusive ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast led by Dr. William E. Hake, you and your team will learn how to address compliance concerns related to the query process. The webcast is this Thursday, October 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, view the upcoming webcast tab in today's broadcast, and save $30 by entering the coupon code TUESDAY.
1: Robert Tennant is Director of Health Information Technology Policy for the Medical Group Management Association, or as we know them, MGMA. In his role at that association, Mr. Tennant focuses on federal legislative and regulatory health information technology issues. And, of course, that brought Mr. Tennant to the run-up of ICD-10 and to Talk 10 Tuesday. So, good morning, Rob, and welcome back to Talk 10 Tuesday once again. So, Rob, a couple of questions in the time that we have today. Uh, have group practices seen an increase in the quality care reports? So, those are the reports that are based on ICD-10 codes that they received from Medicare and other health plans following the
7: transition to ICD-10 back in 2015. Chuck, let me just say first of all, thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be back on Talk 10 Tuesday. The run-up to ICD-10 was a huge challenge for medical groups. Um, We had to get a lot of ducks in the row uh, to make it happen in terms of training, software upgrades, Um, but it happened fairly smoothly thanks to the the extended uh, uh, time limits uh, to get ready. Um, but, you know, one of the, the many pro- promises made to medical groups was the fact that health plans would have more and better data, and they would be able to feed that data back to the practices in the form of quality care reports. And so I guess now we've had um, ICD-10 in place now for um, fully uh, four years. So the question is, have we seen those types of reports flowing back to the, the practices? And for the most part, the answer is no. Um, Medicare does uh, provide some feedback uh, on the quality payment program, the QPP, but that traditionally comes as, as as long as a year after the care has been delivered. So it's really not actionable. Um, and certainly we've not heard that any commercial health plans are providing any kind of uh, feedback to practices on their clinical care performance. However, we have heard that practices are able to use internal analytics software to be able to benchmark uh, their physicians and other clinicians and using ICD-10 codes, that can be very helpful. So a little bit of a mixed bag on that one. Generally speaking, to uh,
1: Medical Group's view, the move to ICD-10 as an improvement in care delivery, or do they see it more as a compliance exercise?
7: Again, there were many promises made uh, by the proponents of ICD-10, uh, not least of all that we would see a sharp decrease in the number of uh, prior authorizations. Um, so I think at that point, we were hopeful that there would be some some value uh, to the administrative side of the practices, but uh, but also, fr- frankly, that the care delivery process would be improved. Again, we've not really seen that in the uh, the past four years. Uh, uh, for example, MGMA uh, surveys our members on, on prior authorization, and for the last uh, th- uh, three years, Um, more and more are reporting that the payer requirements for prior authorization are actually increasing. And in fact, uh, in a a survey that just closed uh, about a week ago, um, prior authorization was listed as the number one administrative burden faced by practices. And I I expect that that will be something that will resonate with many of your audience. Um, So unfortunately, we have seen ICD-10 more as a compliance exercise and it hasn't really um, improved the care delivery process that, that we can see. Because with, with reimbursement being focused more on procedure codes, um, we were hopeful that, again, these feedback loops uh, that would include the diagnosis codes would really push the needle on care delivery. But unfortunately, we've not seen that. You
1: know, we're talking about the potential of moving to ICD-11. What do you think the response will be for medical groups to this new code set?
7: Well, a little bit of skepticism, perhaps a little bit of cynicism. Uh, What's interesting about ICD-11 is that the World Health Organization, um, at least the the draft set of codes, is 55,000, which is significantly less than the 70-plus thousand in uh, ICD-10 in the American version. Uh, WHO is also saying that they do not want countries to modify it. So that's going to mean a reduction in codes, which in some ways might be beneficial, but also many medical specialty uh, groups may find that they no longer have codes that apply to quality measures. So we're going to have have to look at that issue. Of course, there's the uh, continued issue about software upgrades and staff training. Um, so it will be a heavy lift again, but I think we're now more aware of what has to happen having gone through ICD-10. So hopefully the transition will be a little bit smoother.
1: Thanks again, Rob. That was Robert Tennant with MGMA. Now is the time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Enthusiast called Talk Back, and it features her own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Riemer, what are you going to be talking about today?
2: I submitted some additional questions at CMS after the informational session, and I received a response to some Thursday, and I thought I would uh, share them with you. First, in the methodology, they refer to the actual average costs. Now, I wondered, is this really costs or is it charges? There is a distinct difference. Part of the problem that got us into this whole risk adjustment payment methodology in the first place is the fact that institutions' costs were not being paid sufficiently, so there was inflation of charges. If a hospital is really paying $2 for a 500-milligram Tylenol pill, they should send someone to Costco and let them purchase a bottle of 325 caplets for seventeen ninety nine. CMS also pointed out in their response that you shouldn't conflate capital costs with op- uh, operating costs. I still wonder about the whole cost um, submission to CMS, whether it's reliable or not. So how about the diagnoses? If providers did satisfactory documentation and the codes captured all the secondary diagnoses, there wouldn't be a whole industry of clinical documentation integrity specialists trying to get the record accurate. How do we know that subclass purportedly without any CCs or MCCs really didn't have any CCs or MCCs? Maybe the cost was high because there were uncaptured CCs or MCCs and the patient was counted in the wrong tier. That would skew the data. Um, The one thing I did learn from the call was to ask all your questions at the same time when you get called upon because during the call, I noted that there's often overlap during resource consumption and it may be hard to tease out the uh, contribution of a given comorbid condition, but that was the only question I got to ask. So, for instance... If the patient has an exacerbation of COPD, which they used as their example, and they have acute on chronic hypoxic respiratory failure and pneumonia, it may be hard to determine excess resource utilization of the CC in the setting of related respiratory MCC conditions. I asked how they account for that, and I'm not sure I got a satisfactory um, answer. If I understand the methodology correctly, after they determine the proposed subclass, such as 2- or 1+, the condition gets reviewed by their clinical staff to make an official recommendation. I suspect this process led to some of the confusion. If you remember, there was a a mistake in the original proposed rule. Um, CMS reminded us that it's an iterative process, and they resampled to see if the change was valid. Counter to their described methodology in in their uh, email response, they claimed that the diagnosis codes are assessed from a clinical perspective first, and then the statistical data is reviewed. That seems kind of strange. Um, It seems to me that there should be a more scientific process where the data really guides the designation, although I actually think CC designation by clinical gestalt would be just as functional. Intuitively, it seems obvious that moderate malnutrition cannot possibly be more impactful than severe malnutrition and that a myocardial infarction as a secondary diagnosis cannot possibly use less resources than candidate esophagitis, for which they are recommending an upgrade. I don't understand how they ended up with 1492 recommended changes in the proposed rule when there were only 691 calculated subclass changes, 258 of which were recommended downgrades. I don't understand um, how that uh, translated. I recommend you download and review the data file and send CMS your observations and questions Our comments do make an impact. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Erica, very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 390th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today, Tim Babosi, Gloria Ann, Brian Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, our special guest Robert Ten from MGMA, and our co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device. Join us next Tuesday as we continue our series, Five Looking at Ten. That's when Stanley Knox is going to be our special guest. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10
0: Monitor Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.